Our scripture reading this morning is Leviticus 1, 1 through 9. This is the word of God. Then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord from the livestock, you may bring your offering from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to bring an unblemished male. He will bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting so that he may be accepted by the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering so it can be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He is to slaughter the bull before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priests, are to present the blood and splatter it on all sides of the altar that is at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then he is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, will prepare a fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Aaron's sons, the priests, are to arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on top of the burning wood on the altar. The offerer is to wash its entrails and legs with water. Then the priest will burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Amen. Thank you, John. I don't know if it's just me, but nothing says Mother's Day quite like a passage from Leviticus. Uh, entrails and fire and all of that. So uh, welcome to Sound City Bible Church. If you're new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are more or less officially kicking off our teaching series in the book of Leviticus today. One of our favorite things to do as a church is to just go through books of the Bible and to learn how all of God's Word is relevant to our lives. And I've kind of joked about it before, but the reality is that many followers of Jesus avoid the book of Leviticus because it's confusing or it seems irrelevant. Even when you hear a scripture reading and a passage like that, you're like, oh, we're cutting up animals and putting it on an altar. What does that have to do with my life? And what does that have to do with, with me? And so that's the hope and the, the, the desire for this teaching series. And we, last week, you know, kind of sort of started the, the book of Leviticus, but then I tricked y'all and we actually did Exodus to kind of see the storyline that leads up to this point. See that God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them through the proverbial waters of baptism in the, in the Red Sea. He led them to Mount Sinai and he showed up in his glory and he said, we're going to have a covenant relationship. You will be my people. I will be your God. And we're going to set up a tent of meeting. And it is at this tent of meeting that I will show up in my glory and in my presence. And this is where we will meet together. And Moses constructed the tabernacle, and then the glory of God showed up in this incredibly powerful way, so much so that Moses himself couldn't even go into the tent of meeting, leaving us with this question, how can uh, mortal, sinful, unclean, unholy people live in the presence and in relationship with a holy God? And the book of Leviticus is the answer to that question, the sacrifices and the rituals. And we're going to begin today by looking at chapter 1, the first of these sacrifices known as the burnt offering. And someone who loves me dearly but was not paying close enough attention during the first sermon walked up after the sermon on the burnt offering at the 9 a.m. service and handed me a cigar. And so... Uh, as much as I would love to uh, enjoy this right now as a burnt offering to the Lord, I'm going to wait until later. Uh, I'll give that to you for a Mother's Day present, how about, for later. So, All right, will you join with me in prayer? The good news is we can go directly to our Lord, and He hears 
our prayers like a burnt offering going up to him. So let's draw near to God through Christ Jesus now. Lord, we thank you that you are God who is continually drawing near to your people. And we thank you, Lord, that through the sacrifice of Jesus, we have been given a direct access to you, a direct access to the most holy place. And that, Lord, when we pray like this, you hear our prayers and you are not far away or distant, that you are present with us even right now. Lord, for myself, I ask that you would guide my speech and I would only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And Lord, would each and every single one of us be drawn closer to you as a result of our time together today. It's the name of Jesus we pray. And everyone said, amen. Leviticus chapter one, verse one. Then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. I'm going to stop right there. And we're going to just, it's going to be here like four hours to get through this chapter. So I want you to know a few things about the book of Leviticus briefly before we continue on in this. The the book of Leviticus, the name is really just an Americanized or an English way to say of the Levites. The Levites, you might know, is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Levi, the, uh, the son of Israel, the son of Jacob. And God gave this particular tribe, this particular family, responsibility of leading the rest of the nation of Israel in worship. Each of these different tribes had different responsibilities. Judah is the the tribe that is going to have the kings come from it. And Levi is the tribe where the priests and the leaders of worship are going to happen. I think it's Naphtali is the tribe that's going to be the guardians and the protectors. And one of the other tribes is going to be the merchants and they're going to conduct business. And so each of these different groups within the larger family of God have a different role. You may also stumble across every once in a while, if you're reading maybe Jewish material, rabbinical material, an alternative title for the book of Leviticus, and it's simply the Hebrew word vayikra. Vayikra is the first word in Hebrew in the book of Leviticus, and it's the word that we translate as the Lord called. The Lord called. So the book of Leviticus could also be thought of as the Lord just calling, summoning his people, Moses and his people together. Which also leads us to the second thing I want you to know about the book is that God is the primary speaker. There's a little bit of narrative, there's a little bit of story in like chapters 8 and 9, but for the most part, the book of Leviticus records the words of God himself speaking to Moses, Moses relaying these words to the people. Here's a really interesting little tidbit about the book of Leviticus. If you think about the story of the life of Moses, so Exodus, Moses is born, and uh, just quick Pop quiz, Bible quiz, don't be bashful. How many of you know how long the Bible says that Moses lived? How many years? 120. Whoever said that? Was that in the balcony? Good job. Oh, it was you. You threw your voice, Rachel. That was impressive. I was about to blame Josh Mullen up there. Uh, Yes, 120 years. So if he's born at the beginning of Exodus, he passes away at the end of Deuteronomy. Exodus tells about the first 80 years of his life. Deuteronomy numbers the last 40 years of his life. Leviticus takes place over the course of one month. One month. Go read the end of Exodus and then go read the beginning of Numbers. It says the end of the first month, the end of the second month, or the beginning of the first month, the beginning of the second month. So roughly 30 days. Leviticus is really focused in. One month, all at Mount Sinai. And most of the book of Leviticus takes place at this thing called the Tent of Meeting. You may have heard the word tabernacle. The tabernacle refers to kind of the overall structure and the physical, you know, tents and all the different things happening there. But the Tent of Meeting is the term that the Bible uses for its spiritual significance. The point of this whole place is where God and his people 
excuse me, we'll meet together. And uh, I was just digging around. I stumbled across a video on YouTube. This video is not particularly profound. It's like a couple's travel blog. And apparently in Israel, there is a full-size, full-scale replica of the whole tabernacle tent structure. And I thought maybe it would be helpful for you to see this so that you could kind of have it in mind as we're reading about the tent of meeting. So I'll ask the folks up in the booth if they would go ahead and just roll the video. And again, the, like what they're saying isn't even all necessarily that important or profound, but uh, if we can fire the audio up on that too as well, but you can see this whole tabernacle structure. I don't know, it just kind of helps me to see, like, imagining the tabernacle structure for those in this room here. It's, you know, maybe roughly twice the size of that, or I was kind of measuring out my office is about the size of the Holy of Holies. Like, there's no other correlation other than the size, but just like kind of sitting in my office, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's about that size. Like, the priest would go in and, and do his duty. So I just kind of like that. It helps, at least for my mind's eye and my imagination, to be able to picture what's going on here. Okay, back to our text. Then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, Speak to the Israelites and tell them when any of you brings an offering to the Lord from the livestock, you may bring your offering from the herd or from the flock. So I want to pause for a minute. I want to talk about sacrifices and offerings overall. Big picture. There are in Leviticus five chapters of instructions given to the worshiper on how to offer their sacrifice. And then some instructions are repeated in chapter 6 and a little bit of chapter 7 for the priest. So if you're reading, you're reading through chapter 1. Oh, it's about the burnt offering. Then you get to chapter 6. Wait a minute. It's more about the burnt offering? It's because those instructions are repeated. The first group is for the worshiper and the second group of instructions for the priest. You'll also see that there are five primary sacrifices. Three of them are voluntary, and two of them are mandatory. There's a scholar named Mark Rooker who puts it this way. The offering of chapters 1 through 6 should be divided into two categories. The first three offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fellowship offerings, were voluntary acts offered to God without a stated reason. So these first three offerings are just because you want to, just because you want to worship the Lord. The latter two offerings, they're, they're called the sin and the guilt offerings. On the other hand, they're obligatory and they're mandated upon the violation of a particular statute. You got to do them when you mess up. The first category of sacrifices results in, quote, an aroma pleasing to the Lord, while the result of the last two offerings was to declare the offerer forgiven of sin. And herein we find the biblical foundations for barbecue. Okay? Uh, it's, I just think that's delightful that literally in the book of Leviticus it says, take meat, Put it on a fire. The smell is going to go up to the Lord, and God likes it. It's a pleasing smell to him. Like, man, I like it too. In fact, I asked Pastor John if we could open those windows and set up the Traeger with some brisket on it, and then like fans blowing the smoke into the room the whole time. But then he thought that people would get hangry, and so we shouldn't do it. So, you know what hangry is? Hungry and angry? Um, So, three of these sacrifices are voluntary. Two of them are mandatory. We're going to unpack each one over the next five weeks. The, the word sacrifice, let's think about the word sacrifice for a moment. In the Hebrew, it's the word zebah, and it means literally just the death of an animal. When you think about sacrifice, 
even in our common usage of the word, sacrifice means giving up something that would be of value. Giving up something that you would otherwise use or you would otherwise keep or you'd otherwise have for your own purposes. Think about living in an agricultural sort of society. You're growing your own crops or maybe you're a little bit middle class and you've got a small flock of of goats or maybe you're upper class and you own some, some cattle. To give one of those up to the Lord is a major deal. Uh, scholar John Goldengay, Old Testament scholar, writes this. He said, it would be really extravagant to sacrifice a steer, so one of the bulls or cow. And it would be somewhat extravagant to offer a sheep or a goat. For, for your average Israelite, eating meat would be an occasional and not an everyday experience. Bread would be their everyday staple. Offerings work in similar fashion. Ordinary people might never be in a position to offer a steer, a sheep, or a goat, but they could know that God was happy for them to make an everyday offering. So think about this. When we give to God, one of the precedents for us in our giving of whatever we give, our time, our money, our efforts, our worship, it's to be sacrificial, like we ought to feel it. By the way, a quick note also on this uh, giving of offerings. For all of the offerings, the person who kills the animal is the worshiper, not the priest. The worshipers are the ones who themselves kill the animal and then they turn the animal over and the blood of the animal to the priests for the, the worship rituals. But the person themselves has to do that. Now think about the word offering. So sacrifice is that giving up, which is value, but the word offering, I love this word. I spent a good amount of time studying out this word this week because the word in the Hebrew is korban, and that Q-R-B root, or Q-R-B-N, root is the same word in Hebrew as to come near. So the word offering, it actually happens, I wrote it down, it's 146 times that this root word shows up in the book of Leviticus. So sometimes it's translated as offering, sometimes it's it's translated as bringing a present or to bring, and it's often translated as drawing near. So when you hear the word offering, think, I get to come close to my God. So the sacrifice is, ooh, I feel this, this is costly, but offering is, I get to draw near and be with the God who loves me and purchased my freedom. So this is what's going on overall. This is what's going to be going on for the next month or so as we're walking through these first handful of chapters. Uh, The voluntary sacrifices, the mandatory sacrifices, the offerings and the sacrifices, and how that works together. Now, by the way, what's going on? What's the rationale for these offerings? Why would we do these things? And I think that just, again, giving you some overview of the theology of the book of Leviticus, three things really come clear. Number one, these gifts are that of gratitude. It's a way for people to say thank you to God. Thank you, God, for all that you have provided for me. Thank you that I have oxen or sheep or goats or birds or bread or grain or any such thing. Thank you, Lord, that you are the giver of all good gifts. Thank you, God, that you have redeemed us out of slavery in Egypt. Thank you, God, that you are always constantly with us. Here is a gift of gratitude. Second thing that we see happening in these offerings is fellowship with God. Again, I already mentioned this language of drawing near. Right there in in, in verse one, or sorry, verse two of chapter one, it says, if anyone wants to come near the Lord, you may bring your offering. That word Corbin happens four times in that verse. Come near, come near, come near, come near. We get to be with God. 
And the third thing that happens with these offerings is the healing of a relational rift. Because there are times when we, as fallen and sinful human beings, and these Israelites, fallen sinful human beings, sin against God, and that creates a relational rift. Or even in the fifth offering, the guilt offering, it actually talks about the ways that our sins create relational rifts between us as human beings. And these offerings are a way to come and say, I am sorry I did that. I want, to, I want to ask for your forgiveness, God, or I want to ask for forgiveness from one of the other people, and we can have a healing and an atonement that takes place. So all of this is going on. I want to say explicitly clearly that what is not happening in the offerings is any form of works righteousness. One of the most persistent myths and falsehoods that I hear even well-meaning Christians or Bible teachers or authors say is something like this. They'll say something very foolish like this. Well, in the Old Testament, the way that people were saved was by doing all these offerings. They had to come to the Lord. It was a works righteousness, but then Jesus showed up, and now it's salvation by grace. Eh, Wrong. There is no place in anywhere in the Bible where we by doing a series of actions or works, earn God's salvation and earn God's favor. First of all, remember, all of these offerings and all of these sacrifices, were all, were, they come after God already delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt through the blood of the sacrificed lamb, through the waters of baptism in the Red Sea. His presence is already with them. He has already called them. He has already chosen them. He has already loved them. He has already set them free. And these sacrifices are a way for them to experience right relationship with God. These are the spiritual disciplines of the people of Israel, if I could put it that way, which is really important for us to remember as well. For those of you who are saved by grace, it is important to do things like read your Bible or pray or go to church or practice the spiritual disciplines and take time of silence and solitude or in a little while here, gather around the Lord's table and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But none of those things are what save us. It is faith alone in Christ alone that saves us. And these are merely ways that we can continue to develop our relationship with God. You guys tracking with me? Salvation is always only by God's grace alone. Now, let's drill down and let's talk about the burnt offering specifically. And there's a lot to cover. I'm not going to read through the whole entire chapter. I'm going to read through some verses and I want you to know seven things, seven things about the burnt offering. The first one is this. As I've already said, it's freely given. It's not triggered by a specific sin. It's not triggered by a certain time of year. It's just a voluntary act. I want to give this offering to the Lord. Number two, the second thing you should know about the burnt offering is it's to be the best that you can give. In verse three, it says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. So you're not, you know, bringing your, your three-legged bull named Tripod and you're gonna, you know, like you're, you're bringing the best one in, right? It's like one eye and he's missing half of his spots and his name is Lucky. Like you're not bringing that one, right? You're, you bring the male without blemish, the best one. Skipping down to verse 10. Hey, if you can't afford the, uh, a bull or from the herd, you can bring a, one from the flock, from the sheep or the goats, but you shall also bring a male without blemish. Or, looking down at verse 14, if you can't afford either of those, if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. Here's the point. Not everyone has the same resources at their disposal. 
but everyone can give the best that they have. That's the point. Number three, this sacrifice is offered in public. And this is significant, right? Verse three says, you shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And then you read down through there. It says, Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that's at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You remember from the little video we just watched, that altar is that big boxy looking thing that's kind of out in the outer courtyard. The priests are doing these sacrifices. They're doing all this work out in front of the people. Now, why is this significant? Here's why this is significant. Every culture in the ancient Near Eastern world offered sacrifices to their gods. But the ideology behind it for every other culture was that the gods were in need. We are here to labor and to toil, and we have to provide them with the food that they need. Most of these priestly ceremonies, these sacrifices for the other cultures, they would actually take place behind closed doors. We have archaeological evidence of this. We've got writings in, in Akkadia and in in ancient Babylon. We've got these procedures and they would basically, they would take the meat, they would take the grains, the priest would say, we're going to go into our secret place and they would go and they would do it all privately and then, oh, they'd come out like, ta-da! Guess what? The gods ate all the food. Good job, everybody. And the people didn't get to see any of it happen. The God of Israel is not like that. God says, you take the food, you set it out in front, you burn it all up publicly because I'm the God that gives everything life and breath and and, and movement and I don't need your provisions. The fact that this is offered in public is theologically significant because it shows that God doesn't need anything from us. This is not about feeding or providing food for the gods. This is simply about saying we're here to gather with our God and to worship him in public. Number four, you should know that the burnt offering makes atonement. We heard this in our scripture reading in verse 4. He, the worshiper, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. It's like an act of identification. This is my offering that I'm giving to the Lord. And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now, I want to spend just a moment. We're, we're going to dig into atonement very deeply in a few months when we're in uh, Leviticus chapter 16, the day of atonement. But I want to make sure we understand something right here in the outset. When I say the word atonement, if you have been around church for any length of time, you're probably default assuming that it means it's like equivalent to the word forgiveness for sin. But I want you to think bigger picture about atonement. Atonement can include forgiveness of sin, but it's bigger than that. And there's actually even a clue in the, in the way our English word conveys its meaning, at one meant. Atonement means that things are, things are just set right. Things are clean. Things are whole. There's, no, there's nothing at all, whether sin or even something else, that's coming in between our relationship. And we know this because the book of Leviticus uses the word atonement here, when there's no sin, there's no sin mentioned in the burnt offering. The book of Leviticus also uses the word atonement in Leviticus chapter 12. It talks about after a woman gives birth, there's a period of bleeding, and blood is, we're going to get into blood, we're going to talk more about that, but there's a period of uncleanness, and it says at the, peri- at the end of that time of, of blood for the woman who has given birth, she is to come and bring an offering to the Lord, and it will make atonement for her. Now, is there anything, this is not a trick question, is there anything wrong or sinful at all about a woman giving birth? No, of course not. 
But there is this idea of, man, this, this is a big thing to go through. There's loss of blood. There's a period of cleansing that must happen. And the word atonement is used even on something like that. That has nothing to do with sin. This is probably a bad analogy, but it's, it's, it's the only kind of analogies I have. So the analogy came to mind for me of like, okay, let's say you're, you're a, you know, a man who works uh, a physical labor job and you come home and you, you know, you got grease on your arms and you're kind of sweaty and you're kind of gross and you kind of lean in to give your wife a hug and a kiss. And she goes, hey, hold on a second. Go take a shower first. And then come give me a hug and a kiss after work. It's like, okay, I'm going to go get clean. I'm going to go, it's like that, like, okay, they come back down like, ah, oh, you smell better. That's nice. Come here. Like, like everything is set right and we can now be at one. It's kind of something like that with atonement. Now it could be a relational rift. It could be sin. It could be something like that. Or it could just be something more of a physical nature. So when it says that the burnt offering makes atonement, I don't think that that should be automatically assumed of like, oh, it's a, for, it's a sin of forgiveness. It just means that the relationship is right. Things are whole. God and and his people get to be together. Number five, this is really important. The fifth thing you should know about the burnt offering is it is totally consumed. It's why it's called the burnt offering. Other offerings, the pieces are cut up or they're brought and the priests will eat some of it or the people will eat it. It'll be a shared meal. Not this one. Verse nine, the priest will burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Or in verse 13, the priest will then present all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Multiple times it's repeated, it's all going to God. It's all consumed on the altar and given to God. Number six, jumping ahead to chapter six, if you skip over there to see it in chapter six, verse nine, And also in verses 12 through 13, it says that the fire must be kept burning on the altar continually. It must not go out. This is the instruction to the priest that you keep that fire burning. It's always ready. It's always available. At night, first thing you do in the morning, get back up, stoke that fire, make sure it's going so that it's always ready if anybody is coming to give their burnt offering to the Lord. Keep the fire burning. And lastly, number seven, you should know that after the offering is burnt up, the priest has a job to go take the ashes and remove the waste. It says this in chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. The priest is to put on his linen robe and his linen undergarments. These are these ceremonial clothes for leading the people in worship. He's to remove the ashes of the burnt offering that the fire is consumed on the altar and placed them beside the altar, then he will take off the fancy clothes and he's going to go put on other clothes. He puts on his regular clothes and he brings the ashes outside of the camp to a ceremonially clean place. There's an identification. The priest says, I'll take off my, my nice clothes. I'm going to take off my, the royalty, the, the leadership, the priestly clothes, and I'm going to just I'm going to deal with the yucky stuff. The big idea for this whole thing here is that it portrays complete devotion to God. The burnt offering is said, I I voluntarily, from the heart, want to bring this to you, Lord. And I'm not going to receive any of this meat. I'm going to just give it all to you. A hundred percent of this goes to you, Lord God. And through this, it's a pleasing aroma to you. It's fellowship with one another. It's atonement. It's things just made right and relationally clean. It all belongs to God. The burnt offering is complete devotion to God. 
The 19th century German scholar Carl Friedrich Kiel said this, the burnt offering was an embodiment of the idea of the consecration and self-surrender of the whole man to the Lord. All of who I am to the Lord to be pervaded by the refining and sanctifying power of divine grace. So similarly, as we asked in our time of singing during our confession, how have you done being completely and wholeheartedly devoted to God? Your time, your money, your heart, your mind, your focus, your attention, your attitudes... How do you treat your coworkers? How do you treat your spouse? How do you treat your, treat your kids? How do you treat your neighbors? Did you meditate on God's law day and night on your bed and when you, when you wake up and when you rise? Can any of us say that we have been wholeheartedly devoted to God in all of who we are this last week? I know I can't. The best burnt offering I could give still isn't enough which is why we need a better burnt offering. In the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, when the Apostle Paul is reflecting on what Jesus did for us, he calls us how we're supposed to live. He's like, I want you to, I want you to imitate what God is like because you're beloved children. And I want you to walk in, in love the way that Christ loved us and the way that Christ gave himself for us as a what? A sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. When the Apostle Paul reflects on the death of Jesus, he specifically uses burnt offering language, a pleasing smell, a fragrant aroma, something that delights the heart of God. Jesus is the better burnt offering. Jesus is the better burnt offering that you and I couldn't give on our own. Think about Jesus. Jesus, you know, Jesus the, the burnt offering is supposed to be the very best you can give. Jesus was the very best that God could give. For God so loved the world that he gave what? His only begotten, his one and only, completely unique son. He spared nothing. He lavished upon us the very best gift that he could give, an unblemished lamb without spot of sin. And Jesus was 100% devoted to the will of his father, was he not? He said, I don't do my own will. I only do that which I see the father doing. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was 100% devoted to his father in heaven. And Jesus offered himself freely and voluntarily like the burnt offering. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own and I'll pick it back up whenever I darn well please. That's the new Aaron Gray revised translation, okay? That, that Jesus says, you're not doing this to me uh, involuntarily. I do this freely of my own will, out of love and out of joy. I will be the sacrifice for my people. And Jesus, like the burnt offering, was offered in public, a public display so that all could see the crowds gathered around looking upon the cross of Jesus Christ as he was offered and sacrificed on our behalf. And Jesus made atonement in every possible sense of the word. Every sin covered for, every relational breach healed through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And like the fires of the altar 
altar of the burnt offering, Jesus is always available. And now all who go to him through faith, professing faith and trust and repentance in him, we can now go to Jesus anytime we want because the fire of that altar is continually burning. And what's even more is that Jesus is constantly still removing the ashes from the altar and making us clean day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute. Praise God for a savior like that. Amen. The burnt offering is all about Jesus. It all points to what he has done for us. And so I want to ask you this. God has given us his very best in Christ Jesus. So how do we respond with a burnt offering of our own? Before you say barbecued brisket, it's totally one valid way, yes. I want to, t- I want to think a little bit more deeply for just a moment. There's a scholar uh, named Min- Ming Him Ko, who wrote a really helpful commentary on this book. And he, he, he says this. He says, in the same way, in the same way as what Jesus did, we should present the very best of our lives to the Lord without any spiritual or moral defects. The ritual of the burnt offering reminds us that our lives should be complete living sacrifices for the Lord. So that this ritual is neither boring nor mechanical, but rather a symbol of devotion to the Lord. So let me ask a few questions and then let me offer a few instructions and some ways to think about this. First question is, are you responding to God's love? So if you're going to give, and by the way, I should be really clear, I am not only talking about financially giving, I'm talking about what, you know, what we just read from, from this brother, uh, Ming Him Ko. Everything that we are, all of our lives. So yes, your finances, your time, your, your love, your, your, the, the things you're going to do. Are you giving in response to what God has already done for us in Christ Jesus? And I want to just be crystal clear about this. Some of you fill your time with a lot of really good and God-honoring activities. Some of you... We're just serving in the kids' ministry at the first worship gathering, and then you came up, and now you're participating here. Some of you are, already have plans to go serve at a retirement community later this week. Some of you have uh, given money directly to a person in need in your life. Some of you uh, showed up early this morning to help make coffee so we could have you know, a warm drink to keep us awake in the doldrums of May, Seattle. Good Lord, this weather's awful. I need more coffee. Like, some of you have just done so many good things but I want you to check your heart. Are you giving and serving and doing all of that in response to what God has done or because you're trying to somehow earn God's love? Check your heart. You could not be more loved than you already are right now. God is fully pleased with you because of what Christ has done and any offering that we make is given in response to God. Number two, I want to encourage you to give of everything. Don't compartmentalize God to just a Sunday morning experience or just a Tuesday night community group. Everything you have comes from him. The money in your bank account, the food in your fridge, the oxygen that you are breathing in and out right now, all of it belongs to God. And so I encourage you to search your heart. 
Where in my life am I holding back a portion of what belongs to God? Or am I living a life of total devotion to him? Is it your money? Is it your time? Is it your relationships? Is it your sexuality? Is it your entertainment? Is it anything and everything in your life? Does it belong to Jesus? And do you give it to him freely? Number three, I want to encourage you to give your best, not your leftovers. Think of financial giving. You could sit there and you could plan out your whole budget and you could, I got rent, I got food, I got clothes, I got this, I got that, and I got that, and then whatever's left over, I'll just give that to the Lord financially. Or you could think about your time. Well, I got to go to work, and then I got I to gotta have time for, you know, um, you know exercise, and I got to have time for, you know, recreation and fun, and then the kids do a lot of activities. Oh, before you know it, your whole week is completely filled, and you didn't schedule any time for reading the Bible or praying or spending time with the Lord. Or, well, we'll go to church if we can get to it, if the kids don't have, you know, games that day or whatever. It's like, give the best of what you have for God. Prioritize Him first. The book of Leviticus uses this language like first fruits. That was meaningful to those people. These are, these are people who are not going to survive if those first fruits don't bring second and third and fourth fruits. And God says, yeah, I know you need the food. I know you need it. I know those are the first ones to show up. Give them to me. Give them to me. And so church, I urge you in light of what God has done for us, give him your best. And lastly, perhaps most importantly, give to enjoy God. We get to be with our God. Anytime you open this book and open its pages, you can hear God's voice and you can know that he is with you. Anytime that you lift your eyes or lift your hands in prayer, God is with us. Anytime we gather like this for worship, anytime we come to the bread and to the cup, our God is with us. We get to be with our God. We're not orphans. We're not strangers. We're not left outside. We are invited to draw near to our God. And so when you give your gifts, do so to enjoy your God. I'll say it this way. Reading the Bible and prayer and communion and singing and all that, it's all means to an end. And the end is life with God. So even now, as we prepare our hearts, and I invite our brother Doug to come up and lead us in the Lord's table, let's prepare our hearts to meet with our God. Jesus, you are our perfect burnt offering. The sacrifice that that we could never give, you have given all in complete devotion to God. And so I ask and I pray now, Lord God, as we get ready to come to the table and as we prepare to sing and respond to you through worship in that way, Lord, I ask and I pray that you would help us to be more devoted to you today than we were yesterday, more devoted to you tomorrow than we were today. And Lord, would you let the words of Leviticus, written so many, 3,000 plus years ago, Lord, written for us, would you help us to see and to savor and to delight in our Savior Jesus more because of what we've read and learned today. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.